Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. I'm Anthony Dworkin, a senior policy fellow here at ECFR, and in this week's episode, we're going to be looking at the fraught subject of Brexit. It's now six months since the Brexit countdown began. That's a quarter of the timetable. But how much further forward are we in terms of knowing what kind of relationship Britain and the EU will have when the clock expires in 2019? And in particular, in the last few weeks, we've seen some significant developments, or at least perhaps significant developments on the British side, Prime Minister Theresa May's speech in Florence, and then just this week, the Tory party conference, the annual get-together of the Conservative Party in Manchester, where the degree of unity or perhaps disunity on the subject of Brexit was on clear display. A conference which I think we can say didn't precisely go according to plan and may therefore have some implications for how this process will play out. To discuss this subject, I'm joined here by Gary Gibbon, the political editor of Channel 4 News in the UK, and by Susie Dennison, head of the European Power Programme at ECFR. So Gary, I'll start with you. Um, you've just come back hot foot from the, from the party conference. <clears throat> How where, was I, it? where I heard coughs worse than that, it's any comfort to you. <laughs> Indeed. How it, was it there? Appalling. Um, this was a party that wasn't quite sure what it was going to do next. It was already in difficulty all week. Uh, most of the events in the main hall were like a hologram of a real conference. There were uh, speeches that nobody felt they really needed to give with very little content, very few people in the hall. The only packed occasions were events like a Jacob Rees-Mogg uh, fringe meeting, one of the more um, uber-nationalist, perhaps, uh, and slightly 19th century uh, Tories. Um, and then we had the leader's speech. And I think the problem with that was that uh, all her aides could have turned around after her um, tragic coughing fit and the stunt that was pulled on her and said, how dare you focus on that when we've just announced some really significant policy and it's quite clear we know where we're going and that's what you should be talking about. But they couldn't say that. They barely tried because there wasn't significant policy because their hands are tied not just on the domestic side um, uh, but on Europe as well. We are um, caught in a, a moment here when the, the Tory party is terrified about the next giant leap that it has to make because there are at least two distinct opinions on the end destination in Europe and it's hard to see how the party plumps for one or the other of them without falling apart. We'll come on in a second to talk about wh what those destinations are but um, just on the kind of personal question of who will be leading the country to that destination um, is Theresa May's leadership now? I think the, the idea going into the conference was that the party had sort of reluctantly settled on her to take them through the Brexit process at least. Um, it wasn't a great week for the Prime Minister. Can we still assume that that's the case? There was even an attempt just before conference to talk about her taking them through to the next general election. That died. I find it hard to imagine her being the party leader at another party conference. There are moves as we speak to try to unseat her immediately. There are other moves to try to make sure that there's perhaps a, a period of grace given to her uh, after, let's say, we move to the second phase of negotiations in December. She could perhaps walk away with some grace, not much intact, and say, 
um, well, I got you through the first phase of these talks, it's now time for someone else to shape the rest of it. You could easily imagine that happening, but things are working at such a, uh, a pace and with such instability in that party um, that it, 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 she could just decide to go at some point. She's reportedly had very down moments in the past, why shouldn't she be having one now? Uh, there will be people telling her, you can't go because the party will fall apart if you go. And that just tells you what a dire state they're in. So what are these two visions? I mean, it does seem rather extraordinary that we're a quarter of the way through the Brexit process um, and the British government doesn't exactly know what its position is. But they, these are quite big splits, aren't they? They are indeed. And I say probably two because the third option that lurks there and burns in the heart of some Brexiteers is simply to walk away and have no deal. But the uh, one that gets talked about in Cabinet, not much I must say, because this is regarded as too inflammatory and dangerous to actually discuss in depth around the Cabinet table, although some discussions have veered into it, is whether we are going for a future which is very much uh, our industries aligned to Europe and the EU rules virtually across the board or whether um, we can just pick a mix, a few industries which are particularly Europe-facing, maybe align those, but, all, but not uh, tie ourselves down into any kind of ECJ uh, jurisdiction and basically try and make it look as little like the single market as possible. Roughly where a lot of people thought the, 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 they might try and go for a deal at the very beginning, a sort of sector by sector pick and mix. Europe has been saying flatly every time you hear anybody say in public, that is not up for negotiation, that is not on offer. But uh, you will hear cabinet ministers, and I heard them in Manchester this week, and some of them are closely involved in this whole process, who are, who are saying that is a serious option. They pick up on the uh, uh, vines that it might just uh, be a runner. On the other side, you have the Treasury and Philip Hammond most prominently saying, actually, the only thing that Europe will buy is if we were properly aligned with them across the whole range of industries. And of course, that's toxic to a huge chunk of the rest of the party. So Susie, how does this process look from the European perspective? Do, do European leaders and negotiators see a, a, a government that they can do business with? And, you know, how do they make sense of all this? Well, I think that um, the views kind of change quite significantly over the course of the summer um, from um, there having been um, various kind of flashpoints um, uh, in the discussions uh, where the other sort of where the EU side um, thought that the UK had a sort of a deliberate blocking tactic. There were these issues around um, the policy papers that the UK was or wasn't releasing on the financial settlement, um, particularly, um, and, and a sense that the UK was, um, was, was not doing its homework, not getting its position together. Um, but, you know, I think there was a sort of a real goodwill on the part, particularly of Michel Barnier, um, up until around September to try to get to a point where um, at this October's council meeting, there would be sufficient progress um, to sort of to talk about some of the issues um, like the future trade relationship, um, potentially also the future security relationship, which are going to be quite critical in terms of how this deal sells um, in the UK. 
but I think that kind of changed in September and there's a real sense now, a real understanding that, that this isn't a strategy, this is a shambles. And certainly if you look at the reporting um, in France and Germany, um, which, um, which I've been doing um, after the Tory conference this week on the speech particularly, it, it really is that sense that um, this is just a total mess. And um, with regards to, to Brexit, I mean, the process from the European side goes on. The negotiations will continue. The question about when you talk about the wider relationship, I think, has probably now been pushed back to December. But the question sort of becomes for um, for the other side in the talks, can they take the current government sort of uh, as a credible uh, other half in the discussions? How long should they assume that um, uh, that is it is this government in place? And 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 if they have to work with this government, then 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 what should they understand um, as being what the what the UK is pushing for? So um, I think that uh, we should be under no illusions about um, sort of how this looks from the other side. But, but also about um, the extent to which um, there's going to be sort of any concessions in light of that. I think um, as far as Brussels is concerned, the, the juggernaut sort of goes on and the, 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 you know, the, the, the deadlines will have to be met. Um, and um, it's, it's down to the UK to, to sort this one out. Nobody wants the kind of the cliff edge scenario that, um, uh, that Gary was just describing as, as the sort of the, the third option. But but equally, I don't think that um, the European side are in a position to sort of um, to adapt to, to, to the threat of that. And I guess the, the impression you're getting is that we're seeing we're not seeing more flexibility from the European side, you know, in light of these problems, if anything, the opposite. Um, and certainly in the last week, the European Parliament has been um, making some pretty negative noises about this process. I mean, there's no um, suggestion that they would be willing to, you know, to, to kind of bend the rules a bit or perhaps to stretch the period out or anything like that? No, I mean, as I say, I think that there was a sense that um, over the summer that uh, if, if the UK was kind of playing the game, um, then, uh, then, then there might have been sort of some willingness to bend the rules in terms of this issue of sequencing, um, this, this idea that you have to have um, enough of an understanding on the concrete areas um, uh, of, of the negotiations before, before you talk about the future. You know, I, I think there, there, is, there was um, sort of a willingness to bend the rules in that way. But yeah, as you say, I think that the more that this looks like just sort of total chaos, the more um, the European side um, will kind of stick to the rule book um, in terms of the negotiation. And, you know, going into the European Council um, this time in October... I think it's around the 20th of October, um, there, there, there has been um, some agreement on uh, the issues around citizens' rights um, and, and this idea of just giving direct effect to the withdrawal agreement. Um, there has been some progress in the discussions on Ireland, um, particularly, but the kind of the really vexed issue remains this question of the financial settlement. And, and there, I think that over the summer, it was... Um, the, the sense that was coming out from, from Barnier's side that what they wanted to see was some agreement around the methodology, uh, if not the actual figure. So how you would calculate the financial settlement, even if the, the sort of figure itself was too toxic. Um, but sort of even that has, has kind of gone away now. Um, and um, yeah, as I say, I think, I think they're sort of the, going to um, stick to the rules. So Gary, as, as Susie says, there are these two questions. First of all, the, the kind of... Um logistics of the exit itself and these questions of, of the border, of the financial settlement, 
the status of, of you know, foreign nationals. Um, and then there's part two, which is the future relationship. Um, and that's the one that you said is, you know, where Britain simply hasn't resolved what it's going for. When, when, is, when is the moment when these, you know, this rather important question will actually be settled? Absolutely critical question to which nobody I've spoken to in government uh, the last several months has the answer. Um, but I think there's a, an awareness that they have to confront this by December. The, you've got employers' organisations as well as um, trade union organisations saying, trying to come up with language which will convey the urgency and panic that is uh, abroad in our economy at the moment, uh, because they know that major decisions about uh, a year from now, two years from now, are being made now uh, in real time. And unless people know what the end state is and have a sense of uh, where we're going, it's all very well to come up with this uh, transition idea. Um, but the transition might not exist if we fall off a cliff and there's no deal. And even if it does exist, they quite want to know where the end state is anyway. I think I've got a bit of sympathy for the government over um, the Northern Ireland and money bill for Brexit issues being entangled with the end state. They are entangled with the end state. And I think there's an acceptance in parts of Brussels, even though it's not part of Michel Barnier's uh, mandate, that as was being said, you give us a, give us a clue about the money. You know, sign up to the some uh, uh, definitions uh, rather than uh, putting absolute numbers on it. And I think there's some flexibility there. And amazingly, a week ago there was a sense of progress after Florence. Not massive. I mean, it was just you know, we were asking for a transition because we hadn't uh, we hadn't got there on the end state. I'm not going to overstate it, but there was that sense. And I think now the thing that. I was understanding Theresa May's government would ask for at the October Council is, look, we know you think we haven't made enough, enough progress, but will you, the 27, start working on your mandate for the next phase so that it's ready in December and you don't have to start all those talks then and that can sort of save us a bit of time and the rest of it? Well, if they may yet do that. Uh, I can imagine Theresa May trying to do that, but I can also imagine um, the 27 saying, well, who are you? Are you even here uh, in December? Right, and we, we're a lot closer to our mandate than you seem to be to yours. I think they could make that argument to her face. And how do you see then, you know, this, this question being settled? Is it a question of where the centre of gravity in the party is? Is it a question of business, you know, increasingly making its voice heard? Do you, I mean, this is speculative, but do you have any sense where, where the government is likely to end up in three months' time? No. The Chancellor is pulling Theresa May towards his orbit in these discussions, which is one of the things which is adding, for some people, not everyone yet, but for some uh, Brexiteers, it adds to the sort of sense of destabilisation around her. They thought she was the guarantee that Brexit would happen closer to their terms, because in Lancaster House uh, and repeated in Florence, she uh, gave some of the guarantees that they were looking for on not being part of the single market, end to freedom of movement, and not a member of the customs union. Um, they begin to think that uh, Philip Hammond, post the election with her weakened, is pulling her into his orbit, which is um, in the awful jargon, sort of Norway plus plus rather than Canada plus on the other side and the rest of it, but, but something that is far too much rule taking rather than rule making. Uh, for our economy. And that's, I think, uh, where things are at the moment. And it, it's not at all clear how that is resolved. 
And I suppose that might have been one of the explanations for the kind of uh, attempt of, by Boris Johnson to set these red lines, to stop that drift. One of the explanations. I think that's very fair, yes. I mean, he, he was concerned that there was uh, too much being given away in the transition. You can see at the moment that some of the things she's asked for in the transition, there's already a bit of a... Uh, a, a, a movement against that, to sort of pull back from that, even though the whole of the cabinet signed up to the Florence speech. You can hear people saying, oh, well, maybe we should have uh, the common fisheries policy not part of the transition. Well, you can understand why they wouldn't want it part of the transition, um, because someone's going to come along from a meeting you weren't part of, telling you what, what you can fish that year. Uh, um, but will the EU turn around and say, of course, no, we see the logic of that. How, how awful for you. That could be embarrassing. No, of course you don't need to be part of the common fisheries policy. I don't quite see it. Susie, do you think, I mean, the, you know, it's from, from the British perspective, it's, as Gary says, rather unclear, you know, what the government will end up pushing for. Do you think Europeans have a sense of you know, where the heart of this government is? What do they expect to be the, the ultimate British ask when the negotiations finally get to that stage? Um, I mean, I think that this idea around um, sort of dividing up the single market, and I think there is a strong expectation um, that, uh, that the UK will be coming on that front. And I think that... Um, that's why we've had sort of fairly clear messaging from um, from different leaders um, on um, in the EU twenty seven, sort of saying that you know that that won't be acceptable. Um, I suspect that um, there is more nuance in that position, but you know that that, that would be something that would come out um, as you got into a serious phase um, of the discussions um, in that area. So I think that you know there's a strong expectation on that side. I think that there's also, um, you know, this, this, this whole um, idea about transition has been understood uh, on, on, on the Euro European side as well as, as being, you know, quite critical to, to the debate. Um, but I think that all of the, the, the kind of the big messages um, that are coming out um, for, from the UK are around these issues around the future trade relationship, the future security relationship, um, the the number 10 letter at the beginning um, triggering the negotiations uh, to Donald Tusk um, created quite some waves with, with the focus on, on that, that special partnership um, in those areas. So I think they see these as the sort of the, the big areas where, um, where the UK uh, wants um, wants to to achieve something, and then yeah, the the, the final point um, related to the sort of the current round of negotiations is uh, is is the issue of the what 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 is called in Britain the exit bill, where I think there's a strong expectation that um, the UK will push that down as 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 low as possible, and uh, you know from from the EU perspective, it's seen very much that um, they losing a big chunk of the budget. Um, with, with the UK going, um, that has big implications for the current um, financial perspective, the current sort of projections for, for what's going to be spent, and, and the UK quite simply has to honour that. So, so yeah, I think I would sort of highlight those as the big areas where they're sort of expecting tough talks. And there is this sense that the kind of prevailing cliche that's emerging in the press here is that the EU has what's called the whip hand. In other words, essentially, it can just wait it out um, and there's all this pressure on the British government and the EU is, you know, has, in a way, less at stake. Um, but the picture that, that you're painting is one where, you know, they're perhaps, you know, willing to give that impression. But ultimately, you know, they do see some um, potential to negotiate, to compromise on some of these questions, that some of the more hardline statements that are coming out 
are part of that negotiation rather than simply this is where we stand and we don't see any need to, to move. Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. Um, but I, I think that that as well, you know, the extent to which this is um, going to be their final position or not, um, will just de- depend on the sort of the mood music around um, around the talks. And, um, uh, you know, we we think a lot um, about how politically sellable the, the deal is ultimately going to be um, in the UK. But obviously, that applies uh, for all of the other member states that are involved as well. And um, I think that sort of broader political picture is, is one that, that we do have to keep in mind. So uh, I think, you know, it, it, will, be, it will be easier for um, Angela Merkel to, to go back um, to a German public and with a deal which has made some concessions um, for the good of the future relationship with the UK on, on how they leave and, and how they continue to cooperate with the EU and and she can kind of make the case about why that was worth doing I think the more that the whole thing gets portrayed as the UK being just bloody difficult um the harder that's going to be uh for them to sell anything other than the sort of the textbook uh this is what you this is what you get when you leave you get uh, no longer the, the sort of access uh, to the EU which uh which you had when you were part of it um and so yeah I I, I think that is not a static picture either Barry, do you see, I mean, it's, there really isn't that long to go, given the amount of issues yet to be settled. Do you think the chances of Britain crashing out of the EU um, are, you know, are real at this point? Yes. I think uh, you talk to people in Brussels and they talk about 50-50. Talk to people, how can I put this, of breezy self-confidence in Whitehall. Um, and they say, oh, no, it's not going to happen. And uh, it's, it's all fine. Um, maybe the truth is a sort of number halfway in between, but it, it, there is still that possibility, I think, real potential. And not, not least because we have a party governing which doesn't agree on the end state. I mean, it, how, how is that going to be resolved? In the end, if they got uh, rid of Theresa May, uh, 100,000 conservative activists would have a choice out of two names presented to them by the MPs as to who comes next. And they are as Brexity as the most Brexity uh, MP you can think of. So that's an interesting moment if it happens. And it could potentially open up the whole thing again, transition everything and collapse it. And presumably it's likely that the candidates that they were faced with, at least one would be more pro-Brexit than Theresa May? One would probably be more pro-Brexit than uh, Theresa May and the other one would be a probably, if you're guessing now, a Brexiteer who can somehow hope to get some of the Remainers on side. That's why the name David Davis gets touted because he's sat in a cabinet with Remainers. He's had okay relations on the whole, wouldn't want to push that too far right now, uh, with Philip Hammond, the Chancellor. And so I think there's a, they have a hope that, uh, this, that he could be the Guy, they, that's his, his supporters, uh, have a hope that he could be the guy to muster enough support to get onto the ticket and win over the activists. But it would be the other name on the ticket. Indeed. The other thing they're talking about in government is aren't the, and I'd be interested to know what Susie thinks about this, aren't, are the 27 going to find getting their mandate together, assuming we get there, for the phase two of the talks? that easy. I mean, it is a very complicated mandate. Uh, And to answer your other question about timing, uh, it's one that Theresa May, I believe, sold the transition to an awful lot of Brexiteers on the basis that, don't worry, we'll have sorted out the trade agreement uh, by October next year, um, ahead of ratification, which is a very tall order in itself. 
But is it, is it going to be that easy for the 27 to sort out this very complicated area of the relations they want to have uh, with Britain in anything like the timescale that they worked out their first guidelines? I don't know. Susie? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I mean, it's not, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's not um, as straightforward. And I think that, uh, you know, a big um, splash was made around the fact that there is this very clear unity among the 27 around um, this first phase of talks. But no, the more that you get into the issues that are very um, political uh, in the UK, the more um, you see divisions between uh, the other mem- uh, 27 member states that, that could emerge. Um, so, you know, questions like the, the future trade relationship um uh, th- these are very high stakes for the european uh, for most other eu states as well um uh, and that that will ultimately um play into um the the deal that they want to give the um the eu uh, the uk sorry um security too um there are a lot of bilateral uh, relationships between the uk and other eu states which kind of come into the mix once you get talking about that and um so you know i think this will all have the effect that um once you get into this area you uh, you have a much more kind of uh, mixed picture um in terms of uh, what deal you you will ultimately um want want to want to offer um and i think that um this idea of the whip hand is less clearly than on on the eu side i think that these are also areas where we have to remember that the uk has a lot to offer um at the other eu states and i think that's partly why this sequencing question is so important um to the e27 that they they they're aware of that um but where i do think there is unity is on this question that this this just will take longer um, than March 2019 and this is going to be something um, which has got to be thrashed through um, over over a process of years so I think um, so this is somewhere where the, uh, the the kind of the cell in the UK has not been particularly clever because I think ultimately it's, it's just not a promise that can it's another promise that can't be delivered if you like around this um, that there will be certainty on these things by the time decisions have to be taken um, in the UK. Indeed. Well, one thing that comes out clearly, I think, from this discussion is that, the, you know, when we get onto those negotiations, there's a lot of negotiating to take place, um, but we're not there yet. Um, perhaps we can come back to this subject in a few months and see if we're any closer. Um, traditionally, um, before we finish, we're at the end of our time, but we have a bookshelf segment in our podcast where um, each of us uh, names or suggests something that they've been reading or hope to read when they have a bit more time that's come out recently. Um, Gary, have you read I, anything? Uh, there were a number of cabinet ministers who told me this week, I have to read the Varoufakis book, Adults in the Room, to understand how Europe operates. And I, I, I have just st- started that. What I was reading just before it, though, which I thought was very interesting, and a, and a slight um, correction to the uh, uh, sort of general air that you get in certain parts of politics that uh, we're leaving the best club that ever existed and it's, it, it, it's, in, it's in gorgeous state. Uh, Ivan Krustev's After Europe, talking about the divisions that still persist within Eastern and Western Europe and completely different sort of complexions the way they come to it. Just a reminder of the divisions there. I think he calls the migration crisis Europe's 9-11. Um, and then I would also um, mention... Uh, another good book uh, I did just read, Graham Stewart's Burying Caesar, which is all about one of the last occasions the Tory party uh, completely uh, split up over uh, uh, trade and issues related to trade. And that does seem to be the neuralgic uh, one that uh, actually can fracture this party. Um, and then I'd mentioned one other novel, which I just finished last month, 
stunning novel, I think, very amusing, very funny, but it's a reminder of the pull of Europe still, and it's called The Good Life Elsewhere by Lochenkov, and he's uh, Moldovian, uh, and it's all about uh, how everybody in Moldova wants to come to Europe. Um, and then when you get to the end of the book, you turn over the page and you discover the author is living in New York. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, a plethora of recommendations. Uh, interesting to see that kind of tactical alliance between the conservative cabinet ministers and the, you know, a Greek socialist uh, on an anti-European platform. He did once turn up in his leather jacket at number 11 when George Osborne was there. Very far, I remember. Susie? Uh, so my the, what I'm currently reading, I'm much less um, disciplined than than Gary. Um, I'm I'm reading something that's been on my uh, my bookshelf uh, for the past few months, and I, I have been meaning to pick up. But um, with events this week, I decided that um, it was the time to do it. I'm I'm reading Another Day in the Death of America by Gary Young, which is looking at the issue of gun violence um, in the states, um, but sort of the 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 normality of it. So it's basically tracking um, ten young people who who were killed on the same day. Um, in the States in um, 2013, I think it is. Um, and um, uh, it, it came out last year. And um, yeah, with, with events as they currently are, um, I, I felt that uh, it was important to delve into this and, and, and look at the kind of the bigger picture. Yeah, again, that's clearly a very topical book. And the, the book that I've just started is, um, it's called The Internationalists um, by two American law professors, actually Una Hathaway and Scott Shapiro, but it's a history book, and it's a history um, of the move against, uh, the move to ban war, centered on the, the infamous Kellogg-Briand Pact between the, you know, in the 1920s, um, which purported by a, an act of a treaty to make war illegal. Um, and of course, it was followed not long after by the Second World War and has tended to be treated as a bit of a historical joke. Um, but they argue that actually that this was a turning point. It's a kind of counterintuitive thesis um, that the Kellogg-Briand Pact actually started the process to the present state of international affairs, you know, in the last 30 or so years where wars are much less frequent, where we do basically um, think that the use of aggression by one state against another, and certainly the capture of territory, um, you know, is beyond the pale. And of course, it happens, it's Crimea, but it's very much the exception. And they say this is all down to Kellogg and Briand back in 1928. Anyway, that's, that's the end for this week. Um, it's been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very much to our participants. Um, and please tune in again for the next episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please let your friends know and give us a review, perhaps, on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever platform you listen on. The researcher for this podcast is Jonathan Hackenbroich, and the producer is Pauline Gomin.